Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 494 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing and publishing and how to succeed as an author or writer. Now, I have a wonderful guest author for you this week. She is a best-selling novelist and her characters have graced our screens season after season after season, but more on her later. Because first, I want to say a huge congratulations to Al Campbell and Sandhya Parapakaran, who are both Australian Writers' Centre graduates and who are, are you ready for it? finalists in the Queensland Literary Awards for 2022. So excited for Al and Sandhya. I mean, Al is, of course, the author of the incredible novel, The Keepers. She's a graduate of several Australian Writers' Centre courses, including the Write Your Novel program. And her wonderful story has touched so many readers, and she just keeps being named in all the awards. So, so thrilled for Al. And In these awards, she's not only a finalist in the Fiction Book Award category, but also in the People's Choice Queensland Book of the Year. So well-deserved because her book is fantastic. Huge congratulations also to Sandhya Parapakaran, who completed the course Writing Picture Books at the Australian Writers' Centre, and her beautiful picture book, which has also been named on several awards, uh, is The Boy Who Tried to Shrink His Name. It's a finalist in the children's book category. Now, moving on, I just want to give you guys a heads up on a new course that's launching next week. And you'll want to register your interest in this course now on the website, because if you do, you'll be given a very special launch discount that will never be repeated. It will never be repeated, unlike what I just did then with my words. So basically, it's never going to be that price ever again. And except for next week when it launches. So register your interest now so that you get that special price. Now, the course is called Your Author Website. Now, I know that some of you are thinking, oh, but I'm not an author yet. Well, let me assure you that this course will help you determine what you need to put on your website, even if you are not an author yet, if you're an aspiring author. Because when you have a website that works for you, even if you don't have a book out yet, it makes you look professional. It shows that you take yourself seriously as an author and then your potential publisher or agent can see that you are building your all-important author platform. Now, 20 years ago, a website was a foreign thing for authors. These days, though, it's essential because it's one of the very first places that your reader or potential readers will go if they want to find out more about you or, or decide if they want to buy your books. So your author website, it's a fantastic course. I've gone through every single minute of it. It will help you understand what you must have on your website and will give you basically a step-by-step blueprint on what you need, no matter what stage you're at in your writing career. So register your interest for that special price. It's writerscenter.com.au slash author website. That's writerscenter.com.au slash author website. Now let's move on to our competition this week. We have three copies of the Bellbird River Country Choir by Sophie Green to give away. Sophie is awesome and you may remember that we had her on the podcast in episode 194. She's fantastic and her books are bestsellers. 
Okay, so the Bellbird River Country Choir. Bellbird River, 1998. Teacher and single mum Alexis newly arrived in the small New South Wales country town of Bellbird River after escaping the city in search of a change of pace and the chance to reconnect with her young daughter. Across town, well-known matriarch Victoria and her globe-trotting opera-singing cousin Gabrielle find themselves at a crossroads in their personal and professional lives, while local baker Janine and newcomer to the district Debbie are each secretly dealing with the consequences of painful pasts. With its dusty streets, lone pub and iron lace verandas, Bellbird River could just be a pit stop on the road to somewhere else. But their town holds some secrets and surprises. And it has a heart, the Bellbird River Country Choir. Bellbird River Country Choir by Sophie Green. We have three copies to give away. Entries close on the 14th of August. So go to writercentercomau slash win for your chance to win. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? I hope you are, because I'm ready to tell it to you. It is splanchnik. Splanchnik. That's S-P-L-A-N-C-H. Nick. N-I-C. One word. It's an adjective, and it means of or relating to the viscera or entrails. <laughs> Basically, it's another word for visceral. So you could say she had a splanchnik reaction to the bad news. I actually Googled splanchnik reaction to see if anyone has used it in a book, and apparently novelist Lawrence Sanders did write it in his book, The Eighth Commandment. So there you go. It does get used. The words of the week do get used. Anyway, that was the word of the week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. And as usual, make sure you stick around after the interview for more fun facts about the world of writing. Kathy Rikes's latest novel is Cold, Cold Bones. Kathy is one of the world's most successful crime and thriller writers. Her very first novel, Deja Dead, became a New York Times bestseller and her Temperance Brennan series inspired the hit TV series Bones, which is based on her work and her novels. Kathy's also a forensic anthropologist and has consulted to medical examiners, to the police, travelled to Rwanda to testify at the UN Tribunal on Genocide and helped exhume a mass grave in Guatemala. She's also assisted in the recovery of remains at the World Trade Centre following the 9-11 attacks. Let's have a chat to Kathy Rikes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kathy. Well, thank you for inviting me. 
Congratulations on your latest book, Cold, Cold Bones. You have a big fan base in Australia and, of course, around the world. You are the queen of the page turner. Now, for readers and listeners who haven't got their hands on a copy of Cold, 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 Cold Bones yet, can you tell us what it's about? Oh, this one uh, really harks back to earlier times in Tempe's career. It starts, she's in a good place. Uh, her daughter, Katie, who's been in the military for eight years, has re- retired from the military and returned to Charlotte and much to Tempe's delight, gotten a home there. So they're moving her in. They are um, spent the day emptying box after box after box. So they break to go to Tempe's house for dinner. And what do they see on the porch but a box? And uh, when they open it inside, they find a very fresh human eyeball. Katie, it turns out, has extraordinarily good vision. So she notices on the side of the eyeball are etched GPS coordinates. So, of course, our intrepid heroine has to follow that clue. They lead her to a Benedictine monastery where she makes, I'll just say, she makes another grisly discovery. Not long after, her boss, the medical examiner, sends her to collect a body uh, a hanging cor- mummified corpse hanging up from a tree in a state forest. It's a apparent suicide, but, and I, cause I've done cases like that. Um, but Tempe, something in her little voice in her head starts to say, these are seem to be completely unrelated, but they're linked. There's something linking them. And eventually she figures out that what's happening is someone, there's a copycat killer. Someone is mimicking cases from earlier in her career. Now, of course, Tempe is Temperance Brennan, who is the protagonist of this book and of many of your your novels. And a lot of people um, who hadn't yet discovered you discovered your protagonist through the television series Bones, which was obviously inspired by, by Temperance. But a lot of it comes from your background. I just want to take uh, listeners back to your background as a forensic anthropologist. What attracted you to that career in the first place, if you can cast your mind back? Actually, nothing. Uh, (laughs) Excuse me. I trained to do bioarchaeology to excavate and analyze the remains of very ancient skeletons, archeologically recovered skeletons. But because I was the bones lady at the university, um, cops started bringing me cases when they would discover skeletons or partial you know, bones. <clears throat> and once I started doing that, I really liked, um, I love archeology, span it's fascinating, but you're not going to change anyone's life. You're going to get into long debates with your colleagues in the literature, But when you identify a missing family member or testify in a criminal trial, um, you are going to impact someone's life. And I really like the relevance of it. So I retrained, um, sat for my board certification examination and began doing forensics and have been doing that aspect of anthropology ever since. So you start off in archaeology, you get into forensic anthropology and forensics with with associated with crime at what point what was the trigger for I'm going to write fiction yeah because I had never written fiction and well maybe my resume a little bit but um (laughs) but uh I, I I'm an avid reader I love to read um thrillers and mysteries sometime in the mid early to mid 90s I made full professor 
at the university, that's the highest rank you can attain. So I was free pretty much to, to do whatever I wanted to do. And I had just worked on a serial murder case. So I thought I had the freedom to try something new. I didn't want to write another textbook or scientific article. And I had a good case, uh, an idea, a kernel, just the nugget, the central kernel for an idea for a storyline. So those came together in 1994. And that's when I spring break of 94, because I was still teaching full time and commuting, doing forensic casework between North Carolina and Quebec and Canada. So um, I decided I would I would write a book, write a novel. I thought maybe maybe this will introduce my science to a broader audience, because back then no one had heard of forensic anthropology. So I said to myself, I will I will finish this and um, submit it. I think I set a limit of 50. If I get 50 reject slips, I'll give it up and go back to my day job. Um, so yeah, that that's when I started it and why I started it. So by then, you were no stranger to writing because your list of academic, <laughs> it's a litany of publications that, you, that you've yeah. done in, in academia, but it's, that's a completely different type of writing. So what did you, I don't know, like I know it's a while ago, but can you remember what you did to learn the craft of writing fiction at the time? I just, because I didn't have, I didn't tell anyone I was doing it because if you write a novel in an English department, you're a hero. But if you write a novel <laughs> in a science department, you're, you know, you're a little suspect. So I, I really didn't let anyone read any of it. And um, I just tried to write the kind of book I like to read. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I kept, I think, one of the mistakes that academics or scientists make when they try to cross over into fiction they love their discipline. They're, you know, whether it's forensic entomology or fire and arson analysis or, you know, whatever it happens to be, they love it. So they tend to put too much in, too mm -hmm. much detail. So I think the, and that's not what the fiction reader wants. They want to learn something and they want to know it's, it's accurate and they've actually learned something, but they don't want to read a textbook. So I think the key is you have to keep the science parts of it brief you have to keep it accurate. Uh, you have to keep it entertaining, which is not <laughs> critical for scientific writing. And you have to keep it jargon free. You can't rely on all the special terminology we use amongst ourselves as, you know, as experts in an, in an area. It, it, it's kind of the same skills you use in addressing a jury. You don't want to dumb it down but you don't want them to put, a, put them to sleep or lose them either. So I think you just you keep it brief, keep it jargon-free and keep it as entertaining as possible. Mm. So with the work that you do in forensics, and when you started writing novels, did you keep some kind of ideas file <laughs> where you yeah. would go, oh, I'm going to put that in a novel? Or when you were writing your novels, you just kind of remembered cases and events and things that would suit that plot line? Both. I do have a future stories file, it's called. I have a hard copy file <clears throat> and one on, on the computer um, in the hard copy file. I've actually got articles I've clipped out of newspapers and things and thought, whoa, that's it. Because my ideas don't always come from my cases. Sometimes they do. Many times they do. More so in the earlier books, I think. Um, but sometimes they're what we used to call in the writer's room at Bones, um, ripped from the headlines. 
It's an mm-hmm. idea. I saw some little thing in a newspaper article. The, um, the book just before this one, The Bone Code, that was a ripped from the headlines idea. I, I read a little uh, blurb, a little story about a Chinese doctor. We now have the whole human genome mapped and we now have the technology to modify it with the the CRISPR. But the scientific communities agreed we're we're not going to use that knowledge and technology to create designer babies. But I read this article about this Chinese doctor who went ahead and did that. He changed the genomes of two unborn babies. So I thought, well, there's an interesting idea. What if someone does use this this, uh, knowledge for nefarious purposes. So that's mm. the, the central theme of, of the bone code. So that was a ripped from the headlines one. And some are directly from my cases, changing all the names, the dates, the details, everything. Uh, some are things I've seen presentations at scientific meetings that I attend. Some are, you know, things colleagues have, have told me about. So they, it's like any writer. My ideas come from a variety of, of sources. So let's talk about this one, Cold Cold Bones. Where did the idea for this one come from? This one came from me. It came from my earlier books. Um, I thought it would be fun for my readers to, so what happens in this case is this book draws on earlier books in the series. I thought it would be fun for my readers to not only do what thriller readers do, which is to try to solve the mystery, what's going on here, who's the bad guy or girl, but also to try to figure out which case is she harking back to? Mm-hmm. Which book does this draw from? The mummified corpse hanging in the forest or the you know disemboweled eyeball or some of the other ones that show up as well. So I thought that would be a fun thing for my, for my readers. So this one actually draws at my own earlier works. How important is it though? Because a new reader could come to you now and still enjoy any of these books. So how important is it to you or or how conscious are you to make sure that that person's having a good experience and they don't have to have read all of the others or many of the others? Yeah. And that's a challenge. That was the other, the other thing about this book is if you have never read one of my books, this will give you an idea about what some of the earlier books in the series are about, but that is a a problem or a, a difficult, a challenge that every writer of a continuing character series has to face. Mm. For some people, Cold Cold Bones may be the 21st book in the series that they've read. For some people, it may be the very first book. So you have to reintroduce in every single book your central premise. It's a forensic anthropologist. She works in the autopsy room. She goes to crime scenes. Um, and and uh, and the characters, your central cast of characters. There's there's Tempe Brennan, who's our main main person heroine. Uh, her boyfriend Ryan, her the cop she works with. You know, there's a core of of people, and those have to be reintroduced each time. But you have to do it in a new and entertaining way every single time. You can't just narrative where well, you could, but that would not be very very engaging. So I've had the books open with her sitting at a faculty member meeting, faculty meeting, and she's bored. So she's beginning to write her autobiography. 
we get the information of who she is and what she's about. I've had the book open with her being cross-examined as an expert witness on the stand in a trial. So again, it, it brings out who she is and what she does. So that's a challenge to have to do that over and over every single book and yet, you know, do it in a creative way. So you've written so many novels now, you must have a system <laughs> and, and, a writing pro- and, and, and a writing process that you're very familiar with. And before we unpack maybe how it's changed over the years, if we can just talk about this particular book, can you um, tell us how long between the idea and writing the first draft and what kind of um, whether you know what's going to happen while you're before you before you you know get into it? Yeah, it about two thirds of the way through the book I'm currently writing, I will start to wander off and think about the next book. It begin not seriously, but just you know have random thoughts or take greater notice of of things in the headlines or whatever. It begins as kind of vegetable soup, just disparate little things floating around in my brain. The idea of, you know, the human genome and the idea of, uh, you know, somebody modifying it to, for, for, for profit or whatever. And then eventually that congeals um, and uh, a storyline begins to emerge. I decide on setting where am I going to have my characters because they're, they're mainly in, in, uh, Quebec or in the Carolinas, but not always. They've been all over the place. We can talk about that. Um, and then what is this, what is the storyline going to be? What is the science I'm going to use to drive the solution? Because I write, you know, good old-fashioned murder mysteries. The difference is the solution, solution is driven by science rather than just detective work or gut instinct or whatever. I do a little bit of outlining. Um, not much. I'm not much of an outliner. I will, well, let me correct that. I, I will outline maybe the first six to, to 10 chapters, just a paragraph for each one. I know where it's going to go from there, but after the first, that, that rough beginning outline, I just start writing. I do create a postmortem outline. As I finish each chapter, I do each chapter as a file, a separate file, and then I enter them into a master chapter. Um, I, as I finish each chapter, I do add them to, to the outline so that by the time I have finished writing the book, I do have an outline so that if I have to go back and find something and change something, um, I tend to be a very linear writer. I start with chapter one, and then I do chapter two, chapter three. (laughs) My daughter's a writer, and if she's in a happy mood, she writes the love scene. And if she's in a, you know, dark mood, she writes the death scene. And no, I can't, that's wrong. (laughs) I can't can't do it that way. So I do in a very linear way. But it's also a feedback process. I might be writing, and suddenly I get a new idea, or suddenly I come across something that leads, you, I do a lot of research as I write, and it re- leads you down these rabbit holes and things, and suddenly I might come across something that, wow, that's great, I'm, I'm going to use that, then I have to go back and modify, so I have that sort of post-mortem outline to know what happens where, and where I need to go back and, and add, or subtract, or change, or whatever. So you have a post-mortem outline. So you're, you're outlining in retrospect apart from your first six or seven, mm-hmm. you know, or so chapters. But when you say you know 
the direction you're heading in. Do you mean that you know the resolution, you know who done it, you know how they done it, <laughs> and you know, you know, how how it all hangs together? Is that what you mean? So you know that at the start? I usually know uh, what happened, uh, what the motivation is, because murder is the only crime. You have to have a motive. I mean, you robbery, you don't have to worry about motive. Kidnapping, you usually don't have, you know, it's money or it's political. You don't have to worry about motive. But murder, you have to know the motive. So I usually know that and I, I know how it's going to be resolved because I've chosen <clears throat> forensic entomology or I've, I've chosen, I don't mitochondrial DNA analysis from cat hair or whatever. I don't always know who the villain is oh. until late, late in the story. Really? And, and I think what thriller writers do, what I do is you point towards different people, which is okay. The red herring clues, those are okay as long as they make sense and as long as you tie them off later on. So by doing that, you've set up that it could be more than one. And if you don't know that, and, and I think your job as a thriller writer is to surprise your reader. I know if I read a thriller and I figure it out before the author tells me, I'm a little disappointed. So it's your job to surprise them, I think, with, with that that twist at the end or whatever. So if I don't know who the villain is until quite late, then maybe they're not going to either. That is fascinating, even after so many books that you still have that process. So what kind of um, time frame? let's just take this latest book, do you, or and, and is this latest book typical of the time frame in other books, um, do you take for that first draft? Well, by contract, I do a book a year. So um, I get interrupted a lot. I just did a three-week tour for this, for Cold Cold Bone. So I haven't written anything for, for a month. Uh, anyway, I get, but it, I'm, I do a draft in, in a year. We've turned it around and I've turned it in in a year. We then do some editing. I've never really done a second draft. I'll get, I do a lot of editing as I go. Right. Uh, when I open the chapter, I edit, 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 edit up to the point where I left off. And then I start writing because that brings me up to speed and, and whatever. So by the time I turn my manuscripts in, I've really edited them mm. a lot. I will get, of course, editorial suggestions from um, my editors, <laughs> editors do. And I almost always make those changes, but I've never had to do a really rewrite or, or a completely different draft or anything. So you edit as you go. Now, <clears throat> has, has your writing process evolved or changed since the very early days? You know, because when you knew it stuff, you don't necessarily have a system. Over time, you kind of create one. Or did you pretty much start this way as well. I started because I had to fit it in between uh, commuting to do forensic casework and teaching full time at university. And I have three kids. Um, uh, my process was anytime I had a free block of time, write. <laughs> you sit down and you write. And I did a lot of writing at six o'clock in the morning before I went on to campus, you know, for the day. So I, I'm a very disciplined writer. Um, I don't believe in writer's block. I don't believe that, you know, you, you just today I'm not I don't I'm not feeling it. So I'm going to take the day off. No, my process is that any time I have a free day, I write. 
Um, and I, I stay at it. I try to get at it, not as early as I used to, because now I'm, you know, I'm free to just focus on the writing. Um, but I try to get at it in, in the morning. I'm a morning writer. I'm not good at my son is also a writer and he will start writing at like 10 o'clock at night and then write <laughs> until three in the morning. And I know I can't do that. So I do write in the morning and then, um, from about what time to what time? Oh, I don't know. I write from like, I, I try to get at it eight. 30-ish. I play around with email. That's my form of, you know, sharpening pencils. And And then I'll write from nine until two, maybe. And then, then knock off for the day and and do other things. But do you aim for a word count or you just put in those hours? Do I aim for a word count? No, I've never thought in terms of word count. When I started writing, I didn't even know, you know, about word count. I just had a sense of, okay, my book's going to be 35 chapters, 10 pages each kind of. And that's still the way I, I think about it. Um, and if I probably if I do two good pages a day, that, that that's a good day because so I'm we, constantly editing, you know. Yes, it sounds like, a, um, like you're doing, you know, your first, second, third, fourth draft all in the first draft. I probably am. I, Stephen King once said to me, you know, just get it down, get it down and stick it in a drawer, go away and then come back. I just can't do it that way. I have to just keep working on it and polishing it as I go. Mm. Now, when you were, when the television series was on, it was hugely popular, went for a very long time, many seasons. Um, when that was on and you were involved um, and you even wrote um, a number of the episodes, what was that like to write in a television script format? Because it is, again, very, very different. What did you have to do to get used to that format and the way in which the story had to be written? The structure is similar. Um, A TV episode will have what we call the A story, the main story, which is the crime, the B story, which is something going on in the lives of the characters. And then you might also have a C story going on with, you know, subsidiary characters or some issue, maybe an arcing issue from, from other episodes. So that structure is similar in my novels. Uh, both my young adult novels and my and my adult Temperance Brennan novels. What's different is that for television, you don't ha- or or film, it, it's the the viewer is seeing the characters mm. and the scene and and the action. So you don't have to put the descriptive bits in. You, it really di- boils down to dialogue, maybe some action uh, directions, but it, it boils down to dialogue. I remember I was shocked when I got the first because uh, I read all 246 scripts for our uh, for the show for 12 years. Um, I expected this big honking, you know, thing. It's like 60 pages, including <laughs> some additional things like pronunciation sheets and things like that. So it really boils down to just to just uh, dialogue. Now, what's different in writing for TV is that. Um, you, you start out by doing what's called breaking your story, breaking the story uh, in the writer's room. And that's a collective experience. You go in and you and the other staff writers just brainstorm. You go in and there's a terrifyingly white board, uh, empty blank whiteboard on the wall. And for our show, it was divided into six acts. And by the end of a week, maybe two weeks, um, 
you have an outline. You have your A story, your B story, very, very rough outline of what, how your episode is going to take place. <clears throat> you then have to, you as the writer, and each episode has a single, usually a single writer. Mm. You then pitch that to the showrunner and he approves eventually, makes gives you notes, which are suggestions for changes. Uh, then you get sent to outline. Then you write a very detailed outline. I'm thinking it was 10, 15 pages, single spaced computer. Um, then you pitch that, then you get notes back and then you get sent to script and then you actually write the script. So I'm not used to having that much involvement uh, of other people in the process. Mm. Collaboration. It's, 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 it, is it, um, I mean, when you're so used to writing, it's such a solitary thing, right? Writing a novel. Is it actually really quite annoying? <laughs> no, I thought it, I really enjoyed that. I, it was really exhilarating. Yeah, no, I enjoyed, well, not getting all the feedback and, and the, plus then you turn the script in and they change everything anyway because of factors you don't maybe know about, like there's a particular actor unavailable or budget. I wrote one where our opening scene was completely changed because it would have been very expensive to, to film it that way. So um, yeah, I'm not used to having my work changed like that, mm. but, but I do enjoy the process of working with, uh, with the other writers. And then when you're the writer on an episode, you're expected to be present on set and on location. So it's a feedback then. There may be things that aren't working or things that one of the uh, actors uh, objects to or wants to change or something like that. So you have to be there to be able to make changes, you know, ongoing changes. Do you um, have to, do you have some kind of system or, 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 I don't know what that might look like, of trying to keep things, number one, keep things fresh. Number two, make sure you're not repeating anything or things that are too similar. Um, you know, I was reading a book by a very well-known author the other day and then I read uh, another book like three books later and it was really the same scene, the same character and all of that. I think she she's attached to that thing and she's forgotten she's written it. Do you have anything of that nature or you've got a really good memory? Well, I worry about that. And um, particularly this book, I did a huge amount of going back and double check, researching myself, all this minutia that I had created in these earlier books because thriller readers are very savvy. And if you had a character in book seven, you know, who is five foot four, that character better still be five foot four, you know, 10 books later. So you better not, you better not mess it up. So I didn't remember, you know, where was Andrew Ryan's mother born? I don't, so I spent a lot of time going back for this book because this book does draw on earlier cases and me and my assistant as well, double checking um, to keep facts straight. So that doesn't really answer your question. I, I am aware of and try to avoid repeating the same. I mean, obviously there's some repetition. There is a, there is a, uh, what do you call that? A, a, a formula. Somebody gets killed and bones or a body turns up and they identify it. They figure out, you know, who it was, and then somebody gets caught. Now it's a mystery, but I do try to do it differently each time and not rely on the same old tropes, you know, book mm. after book. 
That's hard. Do Do you still do forensic work? I pretty much retired about, I don't know, three years ago. There came a point where I was writing a young adult book, writing a temperance Brennan book and writing a bones episode every year and then trying to commute back and forth doing the casework. So I'm really now just focusing on, on writing the adult novels. How is that possible to be writing all of those things and doing for Yeah, I know. It was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now that this book is out, obviously, um, does that mean the next one is already written or you're in the process of writing it? I'm in the process. I will be in the process once I finish this book tour. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm I'm about a third of the way through it. So I'll get, don't tell my editor that I should be further (laughs) along. (laughs) So I'll get back to that Monday. I'm giving myself this weekend and then Monday I'll get, I'll get back to that. Um, it's called The Bone Hacker, and it's scheduled, I think, to be out in August of 2023. Oh, fantastic. Now, w- one of the things that I mentioned was I think you're the queen of the page turner, and you are. You, you, you devour your books. You can't put them down, and you have a great technique of at the end of a chapter, you the reader simply can't <laughs> not <laughs> turn the page. What do you do or what are you consciously aware of when you're writing to ensure the reader does that? Well, I'm consciously aware of the size of my chapters. I try to keep them balanced and relatively short. Mm. So when I start a chapter, I have a vision of, um, you know, what's going to happen in that chapter. It has to be something to uh, move the story forward or something with conflict in the lives of, you know, you know, every writer knows that. But I do anticipate at the end to try to end it on a note that, as you say, the reader is going to say, what? You know, what? And, and, okay, I'll read just one more. So I do yes. use very blatantly use the cliffhangers. So do you instinctively know where that is or do you sometimes write beyond it and then go, oh, actually, I'm going to just delete all that? Occasionally, yeah. Or chop it and put that in the next chapter. Sometimes I do that. Mm. I, I end up that the chapter is just, longer than it should be. So I, I chop it and move it over to the next chapter. And then I probably have to modify the ending of that chapter somehow. When you're writing crime and thriller and murders and, you know, dark stuff <laughs> and your day-to-day, well, you're retired now, but your, the, your day-to-day work is also involved with crime and all of that. How do you manage not letting that consume your brain totally or is it easy have you found it easy to compartmentalize I've always found it easy to compartmentalize between well in general I guess you have first of all you have to be able to do that as a as a forensic scientist Um, you have to be at least those of us in the medical legal end of it who are working with the victims themselves we work we keep telling ourselves we work with the dead, but we work for the living. Still, you have to figure, you can't get emotionally involved with your subjects, with your victims. Otherwise you won't do the best job for them. So, and you have to, so you have to stay somewhat distant from them. And that can be harder in some cases than others. And at the end of the day, you have to be able to leave it behind at the lab. If not, you're just not going to survive in that 
uh, in that environment. That's not the job for you. You have to be able to, to detach. Wow. And you obviously figured that out from day one? Or just instinctively, uh, that was my makeup. Um, yeah, okay. we, have, we have not interns like Tempe has on television, but we have uh, students, I guess, that come in and, or even young cops sometimes that come do a rotation at the autopsy room and they realize, uh-uh, I, uh, this is not for me, <laughs> excuse me, and switch to something else. You just have to have. <laughs> excuse me you have to have that this is three weeks of being on tour it's not, yes. not it's, it's just, <laughs> I'm drinking this coat your throat tea that Bill Clinton talked about when he was running for president that this really got his throat through anyway um anyway so well, you you drink your tea you drink your tea well um I have to say that uh listeners or viewers that if whether you are new to Temperance Britain or with and whether you're new to these books or whether this is your 21st novel it is uh, it is a fantastic read so congratulations on yet another brilliant book we always end with what are your top three tips for aspiring writers who dream to be having their you know 21st book in a series or their, you know, 30th novel or whatever number you're up to now. Uh, what are your top three tips to them? My top tip is probably number one, number two, and number three is write. Find okay. that time you can sit down and write and don't allow yourself excuses. Not whether it's two hours a week or two hours a day or all day on Saturday or, you know, after <clears throat> work on you know, whatever that block of time is, be disciplined, sit down and write. You may not like what you write one day, but you can always modify it. You can always edit it. But if you cannot edit a blank page, so sit down and write. If you write one decent page a day at the end of a year, you've got 365 pages. That's a book. Um, that would probably be my tip one, two, and three. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I think, you know, write, write, and write. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today, Kathy. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murder course. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Kathy Rikes. I have been fascinated by her career for ages and I just love what she said about her writing process. There's always something to learn no matter who you are talking to because for every author, it's different and it's great to be able to, to, to glean little things that you can try for yourself to see if they work for you. Now, moving on to a fun fact for you. Did you know that the four-letter combination O-U-G-H can be pronounced at least 
eight different waves. There is, of course, off, like in cough. There's uff, as in rough. There's ow, like in plough. O, as in though. Uh, as in thorough. Oo, as in through. Up, as in hiccup. And ought, as in fought. There you go. O-U-G-H. There's also hoch, that's H-O-U-G-H, and loch, that's L-O-U-G-H. Of course, they're fairly rare, so it's a bit different. But uh, yeah, O-U-G-H, who knew? You can have a lot of fun trying to form sentences with all of these sounds, like this one. The wind was rough as the ploughman fought through the snow, and though he hiccuped and coughed, his work was thorough. <laughs> okay, there you go. O-U-G-H. Now we've come to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you're in our podcast community on Facebook. It's free to join. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. Feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>